Okay, this week uh, we have Matot Masay, which is uh, quite a large chunk. One side thing to, to note is that Matot Masay always comes, Matot even independently, and Masay certainly independently, and when they're together, which is most years, always comes during the period that we refer to as Ben Hametzarim, or the quote-unquote three weeks, which is a time of inordinate sadness associated with Churban Yushalayim and Churban Haaretz. It's interesting because both Matot and Masay and Dvarim in it from another perspective, which is the third week of those weeks, uh, have a, a major focus on Kibush Haaretz and conquering the land. It's almost as if the Rifuah is kind of buried in the Makkah. Uh, as we're suffering through this period, we're reading about uh, the salvation from, from what we are suffering from. But I want to take a look at uh, an entire chapter, and in this case, the chapter divisions uh, happen to correlate with the meaning of the text uh, pretty well, and that is uh, chapter Lamed Bet, Parak Lamed Bet, chapter 32, which you see on the first page, which details the story of the uh, request of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain to remain on the East Bank. So a bit of background, if you recall from the end of Parshat Chukat, Bnei Yisrael are traveling in the 40th year through the Midbar, through the uh, Midbar of the Yarden, and are trying to find an entry point towards the land. And Edom doesn't let them through, Moab doesn't let them through, they go circle around, and they camp near Moab. And uh, they then request from Sichon, who was an invading king from the West Bank, who had invaded uh, the um, fertile area uh, up the on the east bank of the uh, Jordan River, uh, who had conquered it from Ammon years earlier, uh, that we requested a safe passage through. He didn't allow. We went to war, and we conquered that land. And now we find ourselves camped, ready to enter the land, but still on the east bank, and the narrative goes as follows. Now, just point out a couple of things. It's a very long narrative, and there's a number of critical points I want to touch on in the shiur. The first is that uh, that the tribes that approach Moshe are reported to have lots of cattle and sheep. And as a result of that, the fertile and verdant area of the East Bank is really propitious for them. It would be great for them to stay there. Of course, that would mean them not crossing over the Yardane. And so the passage starts out with the famous line, So they had a lot of cattle. They saw the place was was fertile and green. And they come. Now notice who it is. It's Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain. They come to Moshe and Elazar and to the leaders, and they throw out a big hint, which is, They list a bunch of the cities in the area. And then they say, It's a Greenland good for grazing, and we have a lot of grazing animals. Hint, hint, they want Moshe to come along and say, Oh, I got a great idea, why don't you guys stay here? And then they have to speak again. Now this, interestingly, addresses a larger methodological issue in Tanakh, which is was just referred to as the Vayomer Vayomer problem which happens uh, dozens of times in Tanakh, where somebody is speaking, and then they continue speaking, but there's another Vayomer, another, and he said, or they said, uh, prefacing it, which is odd, because when one person is speaking, and no one interrupts them, and no event uh, intervenes, there's no reason to add the verb, and he said, a second time. 
Uh, and this happens in all sorts of contexts. This happens when Shaul and David are discussing David's going out to fight Goliath. This happens when Yosef is talking to his brothers. And it happens here. The Benigadim and Ruvain speak, and then again, Vayomru. Uh, and the, one of the approaches to take with Vayomer, Vayomer, and here I think it is the recommended approach, is, uh, that the first speaker says something and is waiting for a response. And no response is forthcoming. So they change their strategy and speak a little differently, uh, perhaps in, in, in this case, certainly more explicitly and rephrase what they're saying. And so the second Vayomer is like, okay, I was waiting for a response, didn't get it. Here's the second take. So Vayomru, imatsanu chen benecha yutan darat zazot lavadecha lachuzal tavirin tayarden. And so now they say it explicitly, and this is exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu wanted them to do, to put it out there and say, if you, we find favor in your eyes, then please don't take us across the Arden. We want to stay here. And then Moshe famously reams them and compares their behavior to that that they experienced 38 and a half years ago with the quote-unquote Miraglim and, uh, and the terrible thing that happened, and you're doing the same thing. You're not just 10 guys, you're two tribes, and you're going to weaken everybody's heart. They're not going to want to cross the land because what he's imputing to them uh, is not just a desire to stay on the East Bank, but a an unwillingness to cross over to the West Bank, perhaps out of a fear of fighting there. Now, they might not have that in mind, and Moshe may know that they don't have that in mind, but that may be the impression that everyone else will get, and now the new generation will again be tainted with that kind of fear. And so then... In Pasuk Tetzayin, so Reuven and God's leaders come to Moshe and they come up with the famous proposal, which is we will build cities on the East Bank and we'll put our women and our children and our animals there. And then we will go ahead and be your lead soldiers. And we will be the vanguard, and we will not return to the East Bank until we can complete the victory and the conquest of the West Bank, and then we're sent back home. And that's, of course, more or less how things play out. And then Moshe responds to them and makes it very clear that he expects them to live up to that uh, to that agreement, and makes the agreement with uh, Yoshua and with Elazar, who are going to be the leaders, at the time, Moshe already knows that he's not going to be going across. And then at the end of this section, you find two very strange things happening. Uh, starting with uh, Pasuk Lamed Gimel. Vayitain lahem Moshe livnei God vlivnei Ruvain v'lachatsi shevet minasheh Yosef. So we find that suddenly a set of families, or one big family from the tribe of Menasheh, who was not mentioned until now in any of this, is included in the land gifting that Moshe does, or land assignment that Moshe does, and that he gives them cities. He gives them the land that they had conquered on the East Bank. And then we get, in Pasuk Lamed Dalad, B'nai God build these cities, in Lamed Zion, B'nai Ruvain build this city, these cities, and in Lamed, uh, Lamed Chet. And then in Lamed Tet, suddenly we come back to Menasheh, who again was not part of this in, the entire discussion till now. And this, that's the first strange thing. The second strange thing is how it's described. Now, we have to stop and think who we're talking about. Machir ben Menasheh means this is Yosef's grandson. 
and his sons, which means Yosef's great-grandsons, go to Gilad Vayil Kiduha. They conquer Gilad. Let me take a look at the map. You'll see where that is, but the mountains of Gilad. They disinherited the Amori who were living there. And then, which is a little bit strange because if they already conquered it, was Moshe giving it to them? Maybe that's a formal gifting. But why Vayeshaba then? Vayeshaba would have been beforehand. They already dispossessed the Amori. They already lived there. And then, so Yair ben Menashe means this is, again, Yosef's grandson. He conquered their, their, whether it's grazing areas or farmland. And he called them Chavot Yair. And Chavot Yair show up several times in Tanakh in different periods, uh, but the same area. Then there's a fellow named Novach who went, and I'll point out what the oddity of this phrasing and also in, uh, in Mamalaf is. He conquers Kanat, which is much further east than the Bashan, as you see on the map, and the surrounding excerbs. And he renames it Novach in, in honor of himself. That's the, the area. Now, this, the oddity here is also the grammar. Um, we have to remember that biblical grammar is not the same as modern Hebrew grammar. It's very similar, but there are some critical differences. And one of them is the past tense. The past tense in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, uses a form that we will call katav. All right, it's pa'al, in which the first letter has a kamatz under it, the second letter has a, has a patach under it, typically, and then the third letter is the, is the end. That is the third person past tense Halach, katav, lakach, ratzah, etc. And it has all sorts of uh, variations when there are unusual letters at the beginning, at the end, but for the most part, that's how it, how it flows. Um, and that is what we call past imperfect. And translated, he walked, he wrote, he took, etc. Uh, however, in Tanakh, when you want to say something of that fact, what you actually do is put the future tense prefaced with a vav, with a patach typically, which we refer to as vav ha-hipuch, Conversivav, which changes the tense from the future to the past. So, in other words, how would you say he walked in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, halach? In Tanakh, you would start with he will go, which is yelech, and then aravav, vayelech means he went. Yetze, he went out, he will go out, vayetze, he went out. I'm just picking the beginning of some parshiot. Yishlach, he will send, vayishlach, he sent, etc. And so, Vayelech, and take a look at Pasuk Lamatet, Vayelchu, they went. So then we have something strange. You suddenly see, and it's not very common, you'll see the familiar past tense, such as, Vayir Bemenashe Halach, or Vinovach Halach. What does that mean? So in Tanakh, when you see that form of the past, it is something we would call Avar Mushlam, or avar de avar, more colloquially, and in English we call it pluperfect or past perfect, which is best translated not as he went, but he had already gone. Meaning, it's not something that the narrative is following, it's something that the narrator is describing has happened before the scene we're describing has happened in the past. Which, by the way, has powerful implications for the first pasuk in the Torah, but we're not going to go there right now. Which means now that what we're reading at the end of this uh, narrative about the the 
conquest, the aftermath of the conquest of the East Bank, because after the conquest of the East Bank, we just held on to the land and were camped there. And now that the request of B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain has happened and has been affirmed with the deal and the threat hanging over them about what happens if they don't live up to the deal, is now they're gifted cities. And they go and they, and so that follows in the narrative. And then suddenly at the end of the narrative, we hear, we hear, oh yeah, yeah, Yerban Amasheh had already gone and Novach had already gone and conquered Kanat and retained at Novach. It's a lot kind of strange. When did this all happen? And what do we, how do we inter- understand the double giving of Moshe, meaning them conquering the area and then Moshe giving it to them? That's very odd. And again, part of the oddity that's hanging throughout all of this is the characters that we're talking about in this narrative are characters who are much, much older than the generation of Yitziat Mitzrayim and of Biat Haaretz. These are people who were alive before we were slaves in Egypt. So how do we understand this? So the first thing is, we always have to, if possible, take a look at the structure of the narrative, which may or may not help us solve these problems, but it'll give us a better picture of what's going on in this narrative. And as you can see on the second page, I've structured the, th- the narrative, and you can see that the 42 psukim that we have here are very neatly divided, uh, in very neatly identifiable as seven units, of which the first unit and the last unit match each other, the second and the sixth match each other, the third and the fifth match each other, and the fourth is the center fulcrum around which everything divides, a classic chiasmus. Matter of fact, you take a look at it, the first unit has four psukim, the last unit has four psukim. The second unit has 11, the fifth, the sixth has 11. The uh, the third um, has uh, has four and the uh, fifth has four, and then the middle one has four as well. What's going on in the first section? So in the first section, we didn't have a chance to read through the entire narrative, um, but take a look. In the first section, um, you have a list of cities. That's all that B'nai Gadim and B'nai do. They come and they list cities. They don't make the request explicitly. They list cities, and they say it's a lush land, and we have lots of cattle. At the, in the very end, what we have is a list of cities. But this is a list of cities that are now conquered and that have been set, have been settled, except there's something a little strange, as we pointed out, in because this is the, uh, the piece about Menashe. And what is doubly odd is that in the first section, it's only B'nai G'ad and B'nai as it will be throughout almost all the narrative. The last section is exclusively Menashe, the one group that's not part of Aleph. In the second section, we have the tension between Moshe and the representatives of God and Ruvain, and Moshe reminds them of the historic sins of what happened, the Chetam Raglim, and the, and the uh, consequences of that. And in, and that's a public uh, rebuke. And in the correlating section, which is in section six, which I marked here, Bet Star, because it's Bet in the other half of Bet, is um, is the uh, formal recognition and the formal um, 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 agreement that's made between Moshe and Yoshua and Elazar and these tribes, the tribes of Gad and Ruvain. Uh, and so that seems to be the resolution to Moshe's anger. And uh, and this is at the first point at which Menashe um, is brought in. We'll talk about that a little bit later. In the third section is the practical solution that the 
B'nai Rufanim B'nai God present. And in its correlate, which is Gimel Star, is the, uh, is Moshe's repeating that condition almost word for word with some noticeable changes, which the Rishonim pick up on. And the middle section is Moshe's agreeing to the condition. That's what this whole thing revolves around, is that we have to get Moshe, we, B'nai God, B'nai Ruvain, have to get Moshe to come to an agreement um, uh, about this uh, arrangement and say that this is fine. And that's how the, the whole thing, the whole piece works. So you see that this entire passage is really about B'nai God, B'nai Ruvain, moving from what looks to be a rebellion, and by the way, in Yoshua, it will almost become that, looks to be a rebellion, all the way to working in concert with Moshe and working as the lead soldiers who will who will cross the Ardain ahead of everyone and lead the battle. But that's the structure. But the real question here is, of course, where is Menashe in this entire piece? It starts with B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain. And if you take a look on page three, you will see that every time that this that these group, this group of tribes is mentioned in Sefer Yoshua, it is never God and Ruvain alone. It is God and Ruvain and half of Menashe who come to Yoshua before they've crossed the Ardain and swear fealty to him. It is God, Ruvain, and half of Menashe who we hear cross the Ardain first. Look at the numbers, by the way, kind of curious. Only 40,000 soldiers. Should have been over 100,000 based on the census in Pinchas, Ayin Sham. It is Ruvain, God, and half of Menashe who are listed as the reason that the West Bank is divided only among nine and a half tribes. Um, if you take a look and uh, further in Parakut Gimel, you see that Moshe gives land to Ruvain, gives land to God, gives land to Chatzim Menashe, in Parakut Chet of Yoshua. Again, an explanation of who's not getting land on the West Bank, Ruvain, God, and half of Menashe. And then, of course, the big one is Perak Chafbet. I mentioned that there was a near rebellion that took place. And Perak Chafbet, which is when the war and the division of the land have been successfully completed to the extent that Sefer Yoshua reports. That's important to note. Take a look at the very beginning of Sefer Shoftim, and you'll see what I mean by that. Um, is that Yoshua now sends Reuven, God, and half Menashe back home. And he sends the whole group back home, and then singles out in Pasuk Zion the section of Menashe and speaks to them about their relationship with the rest of Menashe. But in other words, it's always Reuven, God, and Menashe together every time in, in Sefer Yoshua that any of them are mentioned. They're all mentioned as that group, never Reuven and God separately. And yet, in the entire negotiation with Moshe Rabbeinu, it's Reuven and God. It's Reuven and God who get Moshe's wrath, it's Reuven and God who have to come up with a proposal. It's Reuven and God to whom Moshe agrees with the proposal. And then suddenly, Chatzishev Menashe is roped in. We have to really figure out what's going on. So, as if you could see, um, I put the map on page four. You could take a look and, and see what the areas look like. You can see Knat, if you can recognize it there, at the very right side of the map, just underneath where it says Habashan, you can see how far east that is. And you take a look at the Kinneret, you can see how far north that is. It's really northeast Jordan, just about. Um, and uh, many of the other cities that are mentioned in this passage are present here. Uh, it's pretty much a map of the significant cities on the East Bank. Uh, but when you take a look, and the, the key to this is really going to be in Divrei Hayamim. Divrei Hayamim 
of course, is a Bayit Shani work. That's Chazal's statement in the in Masachat Babatra, in the famous sugi about the canonization. By Divrei Amim, however, includes many old traditions that existed that were not written or written differently in the early, earlier books of Tanakh. And it also starts, really, the first 10 chapters or so, is a list of genealogies of each of the Shvatim, taking us from Yaakov and his sons all the way to pretty much the end of Bayit Rishon period and even into the Bayit Cheney period of each of those tribes, the significant people. And there's also some interesting names that show up and some interesting stories that show up. And one of the fascinating stories is here in Parakei. Every time I mention is Divrei Mim Aleph. Is Parakei, you have the following. Bnei Ruvain v'gadi v'chatsi shevet menashe. Again, they're put together. Mim bnei chayel, anashim noseim again v'cher v'dochei keshet l'mudei mochama. Right, great soldiers. Rim v'arba'a elef v'shva miyot v'shishim yotzei tzava. And that's close to the number we got in Yoshua. Sumachama imahagrim. Suddenly we hear about a group called Hagrim that these guys went to war against. V'yitur v'nafesh v'nodav. So they were successful in beating these Hagrim, because they called out to God and God helped them. And we get something similar that we read in our Parsha in the paragraph before this of the count of the loot from Midian. Now, this sounds like a war that may have taken place way back in, in history. But take a look at, on the next page, at the source, source 11, which is from Parak Bet, right at the beginning of Deuteronomy Malaf. So this is now, this means Chetron now is a brother-in-law of Gilad. There's Yair ben, uh, who we had earlier. Another Yair, by the way. So I'm sorry, this is our Yair, who, again, is born in Egypt before the slavery. And Yair has 23 cities in Gilad. How does Yair, living in Egypt, have cities in the Gilad? There comes Kanat again, the city that Novak got. And so we find that Geshur and Aram, which Geshur is a kingdom we hear about in Sefer Shmuel, in the area of the Bashan, and Aram is famous, of course, Syria, they conquered Chavot Yair from the, from the people of Menashe. When is all this happening? That just gives us a context, a little bit of context. If you take a look at one more passage at the very bottom of the, of the last page, Again, here in Parag Zion, again, Divrayamim, Uvnei Ephraim Shutalach, Uvered Beno V'tachat Beno V'ladav Beno V'tachat Beno. All right, so we get the list of the sons, uh, the sons of Ephraim. V'zevet Beno V'shutalach Beno V'ezer V'elad V'haragum Anshei Gat HaNoladim Ba'aretz. And this is a very strange passage. Now, the lineage that I put below of 12 generations, 11 generations, I put question marks in front of each of them, in front and back, because it's a little unclear if each one of these is the next generation, Bered Bno, Tachat Bno, Aladab Bno, Tachat Bno, is that next generation, next generation, or is it a list of sons? And it's not at all clear. But one thing is clear from here. These are people who are living in Egypt. These are Bnei Ephraim. And then we have this phrase, Varagum Anshei Gat Hanoladim Ba'aretz. 
Who killed these children of the man Ephraim, Yosef's son? Who killed Yosef's grandchildren, basically? Is people in Gat. Gat, of course, is on the coast uh, south of Rehobot, the coastal area, coastal plain. Because these sons of Ephraim went back to Israel to get back their possessions, their cattle, whatever. And Ephraim mourned for many days for the loss of his children. So the other family members came to, to console him. So he had relations with his wife to have another son. In other words, he called him Bria because things were bad in the house. Okay, you want to go through life with a name like that. Uvito Sheera. And so the question is, whose daughter is this? Is that Bria's son, daughter, or Ephraim's daughter? And she ends up building cities in the middle of Israel. Beit Choron, we know where that is. Not far from Modin today. Now we know that this is early because look at the list. And here's the one we want. That's Yoshua ben Nun. So look at this. Yoshua is seven, ten, however many generations it is directly after Ephraim. We know that Yoshua is from Ephraim. But notice that way back earlier, we have people who are either the daughter of Ephraim or the granddaughter of Ephraim, and she's building cities in Israel. How is all of this happening? So we have a, uh, a commentary uh, that's, a, that's attributed to a student of Reb Gaon. And as you take a look at it here in Source 12, uh, to just to summarize what he says, he, he, point, he's, he, make, he makes the point that the, while we were in Mitzrayim, members of Yosef's family would regularly go back to Israel to solidify their holdings, to settle their areas, and uh, and if you see the highlighted part, so he he points out that the story that we see at the end of Paraklamid Bet, which I pointed out, has the pluperfect in it, in Venova Halach. These are things that had happened in the past. They didn't do anything during the time of the desert. They weren't even alive anymore. They were these were people who had come hundred years earlier and conquered that territory, which was always promised to Yosef by Yaakov. And they conquered that territory, which, by the way, notice is east of the Kinneret in the Bashan. And then what happened is they left. So now, how do we reconstruct? And you, you take a look, one more commentary before we just go back to the Psukim, is you take a look at the commentary of Yudah Hasid here. And his son is, who is the one who wrote most of the commentary. He says, my father demonstrated, especially from Divrayamim, that when Am Yisrael was in Mitzrayim, they would keep coming back to Israel. And they would come to check on their land and to solidify their land, etc., etc. And he, and he brings the proof from that lineage that we have at the bottom of the page. So if you look back now at the end of our parasha, you see something that now becomes clear, which is that um, in present time, we are um, coming through the Midbar, 
we asked Sichon to go through. Sichon won't let us. We go to war against Sichon. We're settled there, and there's all this area that didn't belong to us, used to belong to Amon, then belonged to Sichon, and now is ours by virtue of conquest, but we haven't done anything with it. And Reuven and God, Reuven and God, who never had any connection with the East Bank, come up to Moshe and make the request. Moshe uh, rebukes them. They come up with a proposal. Moshe accepts the proposal. It's all good. And in the meantime, part of the Menashe family, which is very large, has already made uh, claims and has had holdings for hundreds of years on the East Bank in that area. Yair, Novach, had already gone and conquered some of these cities. And because then they had lost them, it's kind of hard to control land uh, 100 miles, 200 miles away, 300 miles away when you're enslaved. They had lost that land. So now when they conquered the area, Moshe simply recognized it, which is why we see these two psukim. In Pasuk Lamitet, Past tense. But this, even though it's Vayachu, it really refers to what happened much earlier. And then, And now Moshe cedes it to them because it's always been their land. And now we get the back history. That's Chavot Yair that goes all the way back to the times of, as Divramim says, the times when we were royal in Egypt. And the same thing. And so what happens is that Menashe is brought into this deal because Menashe is already there. Menashe is brought into the division of the land in this side, but and then into the the obligation to be the vanguard and that they would actually lose their land on the East Bank if they don't go and fight first because Reuven and God initiated this idea. Menashe already had land there, and so Moshe then brings Menashe into the deal and says, I'm going to give you these cities on condition that you join God and Ruvain in this battle. We have a most mysterious um, sudden entrance of Bnei Menashe, a most mysterious reference to some very, very old people, long ago people in, in our ancient history, as it were, uh, who get mentioned here as being active here seemingly in the time of the desert. And uh, the curious use of the past perfect uh, verb, which now all come together thanks to this observation of evidently Rav Sadiq Gaon that he transmitted to a student, uh, or was the student himself, if the tr- attribution of the commentary is correct, which clarifies for us uh, a whole piece in this uh, in this centerpiece of Parshat Matot, and the part that, of course, takes us to Kibush Aretz, which uh, is most significant at this time of the year, as we mourn the Churban uh, Haaretz and Baruch Hashem in our day are able to see not only Kibush Haaretz, but Yishuv Haaretz and Prichat Haaretz.